Me, Alex, and Dan are in the lab right now. We're at Fortune Kit Studios, admiring our impressive selection of gear. We've got so many pedals here. Uh, you know, we got these old 1980s MXR pedals that look like they served in Operation Desert Storm. Let's see what we got here. Um, we got the Sound Labs Vinylizer. What is that? Just do? a very, it's a, it's very user friendly. It's got one big knob called warmth, and you just turn <laughs> it up if you want more warmth. Uh, like a vinyl record. That's right. Like vinyl records are warm. It's got um, stereo input, and then mono output. So whatever effort you put into getting a cool stereo sound, it'll give you that nice crisp mono that you you loved from the early '60s. Widescreen mono. Yeah. <laughs> I I have a I, I'm partial to a similar pedal called the legitimizer that um so like you plug into it whatever you plug in whatever guitar you plug in um whatever amp you're plugged into after the pedal it just makes it sound like you're playing a like a Dan Electro guitar with bad intonation through a PV Bandit. <laughs> I've really been enjoying the Finger 11 Paralyzer. <laughs> <laughs> where it just outputs finger 11 paralyzer into your amplifier. I think it's a really warm pedal. It's got great harmonics to it. And the way it just sort of squeezes the tone, it's got like a, a capacitor that really, it's just a really creamy tone, I think. It has a volume knob, so you can really crank that sucker up. And then it's got a back button to just start the song from the beginning. I love the back button. And a pause button if you got to get up. I got this new one for $200,000 from Iceland. It's the circuitry for a metal zone, but it's 35 of them crammed into one pedal. Are they, are they like one after another? It's like it's like plugging into 35 metal zones in a row? Yeah, you don't even have to plug your guitar into it because it sounds the same if there's something plugged into it or not. <laughs> it's just sort of a, a hissing noise. Dude, it's so heavy. But it's so creamy. So this one right here looks like we got a Pedal Man Pro Pro Man. This one's just going to make you sound like a pro. It has the, um, it's just an equalizer that has the equalizer set up the way that a dad sets up his stereo system, where you kind of turn up the low end and the high end and you scoop the mids a little bit. And then you feel like, oh, I've, I've done something here, you know? <laughs> if you want to sound like a pro man, you got to get that one. I'm not I'm a big fan of the the soloist, which is kind of like a more advanced pedal. It's it's a big floor pedal. Um, you know, it's going to take up a lot of space on your pedal board, but it is equipped with two uh, stereo microphones. And what it does is, when you're soloing, it attenuates the it listens to the band that you're playing with, and it uh, picks up any frequencies that might get in the way of your ripping solo. And then it uh, em, uh, emits canceling frequencies. So it essentially, <laughs> it essentially silences any kind of like unwanted noise. Um, if the bass player is being a little showboaty, maybe he doesn't have, uh, you know, maybe he, he, he's got too much of the high end rolled off and it's just like, wah, wah, wah. you don't have to worry about it. It just uh, completely silences the other band members almost entirely. Yeah, I think to be even more effective, we need a pedal that runs. All like every mic on stage or wherever you're playing needs to all be running into one pedal, and that should be in the lead guitarist's pedal board, and then yes. he can just turn them all down at that pedal, you know? Yeah, the master pedal. Yeah. 
I've been having a lot of fun with this new pedal I got called the Larry Summers Parasite, where it's an EQ pedal that's hard locked to the GDP from late 2007 to 2008. <laughs> it rolls off a lot of the high end. It's a yeah. very bassy pedal, but it's just this really thick, uh, this really thick sound that really cuts through the mix, and it's creamy too. Mm. So it looks like this one over here, you've got the Pedalcraft Moxie Fruvis. Um, no matter what you p play through this thing, it just uh, makes it into something that's so sing-songy and annoying that even children can't enjoy it. <laughs> this pedal just gets you into bed and just starts fucking wailing on you. It's the first pedal to be canceled, too. Yeah, you're not allowed to use that one anymore. I think, Alex, you showed me an interesting pedal earlier, um, the Michelob Ultra the self-titled pedal from Michelob Ultra. This thing, it's, it really just shapes a tone. It's got a light, crisp finish. <laughs> uh, it's a bold tone that finishes clean. And it's mostly, I mean, it was kind of a thing for a while, but these days it's mostly used by like 57-year-old dads. Uh, they might break out this pedal on a Sunday while they're watching football a couple hours. Elizabeth so. Warren is a big fan. Yeah. <laughs> she likes the way the carbonation gives it that little crackle in like the 10K frequency range. It's when you don't want It's just a very bold sound. It's when you don't want a big heavy pedal, you know? You want something light, something crisp that cuts through. And you can get like 30 of these pedals for like 20 bucks. <laughs> now that we're, uh, we're out of the good pedals, now we just got to talk about the boring pedals we actually have. Because really, I mean like... From the beginning of this show, I thought of the idea of doing a gear episode, but it's too annoying, really. Like, there's only so many nerds who want to hear us talk about gear. But the problem is, or actually, I was thinking like last week we paywalled like a fun episode. And at first I was like, oh, poor, poor listeners. Now they got to listen to a gear nerd episode. But actually, I forgot that you're supposed to punish non-subscribers <laughs> by talking right. about the most obnoxious stuff. <laughs> so now we got to just spend an hour talking about gear. And everyone is just going to have to deal with it. What's the loudest amplifier? Man, I just want to get the loudest guitar, the loudest pedal, the loudest amp, put them all together and just yeah. fucking, uh, just, just go. I want... <laughs> just fucking just wail fucking, just on fucking that inner Henry. I want the guitar with the most strings that can hit the most <laughs> notes on the most frets. How about like a 30-string guitar? That's right. If you're but you don't have to change the strings because they never break. Dude. If you're like a good construction worker, you're not going to uh, your job with a tiny hammer. You know, you get laughed off the job site. Yeah, you're going to use a hammer that has three different things on it for hitting nails. Three little hammer heads. That's right. A ball-peen hammer. That's why they call it that. There, it's like begging to be made fun of. You're supposed to be made fun of for bringing a ball peen hammer to work. Um, in terms, like speaking of the loudest amps ever, you were showing us uh, the most expensive amps ever, Alex. Earlier, these Dumble amps. I was watching the that video again that you sent us of like the guy who makes them, and his explanation, like, of like what makes the amp special is like barely. You could barely make sense of it, but. He's really just describing a tube amp instead of a solid state. Like he's not even describing what makes his amp specifically different. It's just all tube amps. Like, th like what is his, what do his amps cost? Like seventy five thousand dollars or something? You're saying? 
Yeah, minimum on the used market, seventy-five to one hundred and fifty thousand. It's Alexander Dumble, the Dumble <laughs> Amp Company. There's no, he's piece managed of gear to fleece that. like Eric Clapton and Carlos Santana and guys like that. He basically just copied the Fender Overdrive amp and put a bunch of epoxy on all the electronics, so no one can tell that it's just the Fender Overdrive amp. That's they a think good it's some secret shit. And guitar players are so good at convincing themselves they hear things that aren't there. Yeah, totally. Oh, yeah. And dude, I'm looking at that amp right now, and you're right. Like, it even has the gr- actually the grill is a ripoff of like a Vox grill, I guess. But he's just ripping off other things that were already yeah, around at the time. The amp looks like like the greatest hits of amplifiers, 20th century edition. You know, yeah. It's <laughs> just like there's not. I don't know, amps schmamps like the like. Does does it make your guitar louder when you plug it in? Then fine, that's fine. Yeah. You know, there's just always diminishing like, returns on that shit. Where, I mean, there's a difference between a couple different like levels of um, def- price definitely. points at time, but like over a certain point, it just becomes comically unnecessary. I think if you're spending like over a thousand dollars on an amp and it's not like some weird digital modeling thing, it's they're all the same basically. Totally, I think that actually is really the cap. Like. In terms of both amps and guitars, the best shit you're ever going to need is like $1,000 for each, you know? Yeah. Well, the thing about the guys who buy the super expensive amps, like Carlos Santana, I don't know if he's still playing out, but uh, they're just playing through the PA, basically. Yeah. After a certain point, you're just playing through the PA. And it doesn't matter what your amp is, because it's just like a 57 plugged into the PA. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Totally. Which is why you need to do what uh, uh, excellent uh, long-running post-punk band Wire does and just use uh, Sans amps or pods. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't matter. Yeah, who cares? Literally. Who gives a it's shit? Just, the only thing to me with that kind of stuff is just like feedback. Like, It's still easier to get feedback on an actual... It's simple. You just uh, you just go into the microphone yeah. you know, when you want to... <laughs> When you want to do the feedback part, when you want to get, uh, that's you just get a sound effect. Yeah. You get a dub siren, but, uh, yeah, just on your phone and your phone is on a stand right next to the mic and you just wail on the dub siren. You just get two walkie talkies and put them next to each other and turn them both on. Yeah. That's in front of a microphone. It's noise music, baby. That's, that's it. (laughs) I think, I think I actually watched, uh, like paid money to go see a guy do that in Victoria, British Columbia. In the late nineties, when when Japanese noise music was at its absolute like uh, saturation into the, the cultural mainstream, totally. I yeah. went I went and saw a performance that involved uh, Fisher Price walkie talkies and a delay pedal. <laughs> it was I've totally always, sweet. The thing that made me like understand Japanese noise music as like a cultural phenomenon was a. Uh, the drummer from Boris once said that it's um, it's the Japanese blues, basically. Yeah. And that made a lot of sense to me because it's like it's like the culture of Tokyo and just like, you know, the, I don't know, the vibe of like a big city where overworking yourself is like a cultural value and shit. Like it makes sense why that's like the music of anguish or something. Yeah. A very, like, it seems like a pretty noisy it. place. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Totally. They're not all very loud people, but there are a lot of people packed into there. Mm-hmm. It's got to be pretty bustling. It's uh, maximum saturation, yeah. I mean, some of that stuff is legitimately good, but what's not good is 
someone who listened to it for a month and then was like, I can do this. <laughs> yeah. But that's also why I like Boris better than like Merzbau or something where yeah. once you've heard one of his albums, you kind of get it. But Boris will just incorporate ideas from noise into like doom and heavier music yeah. that still has a structure to it and still has riffs and stuff. Like they found that sweet spot that's like much more interesting and durable. Yeah. Noise noise music was like the uh was like the hangout subculture for edgelords in the late nineties too, I feel like. You know? Like everybody's if if you were like uh if you're living in Philadelphia and were into the noise scene, you would put out a record that had like, like photocopied like bondage images on the on yeah the, yeah you, you know or like you would kind of be flirting with like fascism a bit and stuff and it's just it's funny to look back at that stuff now. It's just such a product of like the end of the nineties. Yeah, the nineties were such a like, politically weak time. Just pathetic. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> Like, oh, you're being transgressive. You're putting like a, like a woman in Japanese rope bondage on your shitty noise cassette while your country is like fucking smart bombing Belgrade. You know, very cool. Yeah, cool, dude. So subversive. <laughs> yeah. yeah, very, very political. Very subversive. Actually, talking about Boris is maybe a good way to segue into talking about what pedals I actually use and like. Um, because the fuzz pedal that I always use is um, this thing called the Eau Claire Thunder by these people in Wisconsin. I think it's like a husband and wife who run the company. It's called like Dwarfcraft. Yeah, but, that's a great, great company. Um, I only just saw this week that they are temporarily or maybe maybe permanently ending their company. Ooh, that They really? said it was not entirely COVID related because they were already thinking about it, but that COVID sped up their decision to at least temporarily see if they're going to like quit yeah. making pedals. Yeah. That's really shitty. <laughs> yeah. But point being, um, I love that fuzz pedal. Cause it's just like, or especially because I don't play like super heavy music. Really. It's great to apply that kind of like kind of muddy, low endy fuzz to just a sort of average rock song. I don't know. But yeah. I think of it because it's it that pedal's used by like Boris and uh Russian circles and a bunch of oh, bands like that. Nice. Playing too heavy is very gauche. You gotta play medium because heavy. It's, it's very easy to like hit the level of diminishing returns where you just sound like five finger death punch or whatever. Yeah, I agree, dude. Yeah. Where you're like everything is just blasted as loud as it can be. Brick wall limited. That's another reason Boris is good is if you're they, trying that hard, play you just seem that. lame. Like if they're doing like a really slow, heavy, doomy thing, like Wata's vocals are so beautiful and like very serene and like melodic, you know, like they always have some way to cut yeah. against that. And that's how interesting heavier bands will make it work, you know? That's like kind of yeah, like the... you have to um, do something interesting with it because we've already hit the limit. Like in the 70s, people were searching for the limit for how heavy music can get. And I guess probably in like maybe the late 80s it was reached the early 90s yeah totally yeah it's it's kind of like the thing with that jesus the first jesus and mary chain record which you know like all the rock songs are are just pinned like everything is just screeching like wind tunnel feedback but then the vocals are every it's the, the songs are so fucking catchy and, yeah they're uh, like three minute pop songs melodic vocals like they yeah it's they not, win you yeah. over by contrasting things super low-key vocals and yeah yeah really good 
um, I always think of Jesus and Mary Chain as having a pretty unique approach to like wall of sound shoegazy stuff. Cause they like really high pitch distortion. Like it's all this yeah, rather it's just, than like, yeah, it's ad, just total piercing, like high end stuff. Yeah. What was that? Um, is the Ravenettes? Is that what I'm thinking of in like the two thousands? Yes. <laughs> they were another band that just ripped off that, that Jesus and Mary chain specific style of shoegaziness where it's all very like trebly high pitch feedback. Yeah, there was them and another band too. Uh, I'm forgetting, forgetting the name of the other band, but they were both like, uh, you know, basically like listen to their whole creative foundation was like the first Suicide record and the first Jesus and Mary Chain record. <laughs> two things which I love, but don't want to hear bad versions of. Yeah, you know? yeah. Like that's yeah. like one of those situations like I've talked about before of like you see them after a show you're like damn have you guys ever heard of Jesus and Mary Chain you should check them out <laughs> yeah, totally <laughs> yeah after a certain point you gotta stop being wearing on your sleeve influences by bands like that like people don't want to really see a new band where the review says they're influenced by Joy Division yeah cool yeah cool man I mean, I think at this point, like, everybody is influenced by Joy Division, whether they actually like Joy Division or have heard them or not. Yeah, know? totally. Like, like any rock band. Yeah. That's why it's so uh, it's so funny when bands come out and they just sound exactly like those bands. You're late to the party, man. That's weird. It's Yeah, I think we've talked about this before, but we are, what are we on? We're on post-punk revival number four within almost, almost just over a decade. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it's, I mean, maybe, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the end of that. Maybe, maybe after the lockdown ends, uh, people will stop doing that, but I, I kind of doubt it. I don't know. Yeah. I don't it's know almost, why it's so durable. Like it appeals to me too. So it's hard for me to, like, I don't have like an outsider's yeah, perspective, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I like post-punk. Like I love when post-punk comes back. It's just like, great. This is my shit. I like the original stuff, but if a new band comes out that says they're, post-punk revival i'll probably just not listen to it yeah yeah maybe it's fine but that just really does not interest me i think i can kind of imagine what it sounds like and it's and i'm already bored by it it's maybe yeah. i'm kind of reiterating what you're already getting at dan but like every like any band that i like is gonna have some of those traits to it but you can't mm -hmm. just like do exactly that thing again no it's a, it's a bad it's a bad move i mean that seemed to be like now maybe it's over now because I stopped paying attention, but that seemed to be the last five years with like ninety sort of early nineties, like right when grunge was right when the kind of weirder elements of grunge were being accepted by the mainstream. That style of music for rock bands just seemed to dominate, you know, like indie rock. Yeah, and for as sure. as somebody who like lived through that, it was really bizarre. It was a bizarre feeling to just be like, oh, this is just like a pastiche of, you know, uh, Eric's trip or like one of the sort of lesser, lesser ran bands of the nineties, commercially speaking. Like it's just odd. You don't like Marcy playground. St. <laughs> <laughs> Johnny. Have you guys ever heard that band? They were like, no. they put out one record on David Geffen and, uh, and they were like kind of a pastiche of the other bands that were going at the time. Like a, just shittier version and that's i was like oh this stuff kind of just sounds like saint johnny but but they were already doing it and they were already doing a pastiche of the 90s in the 90s well when a band gets too old you got to sort of 
replace them with a band that sounds the same, but they just turned 18. That's the David Geffen method. Yeah. <laughs> why did why do we bother changing band names? There should be like 25 band names. Maybe that started, let's say the cutoff point is 1978. And then when those bands start getting shitty, that name is then passed down to 18-year-olds. Yeah. It's like Menudo or whatever, like some kind of yeah, boy band yeah. thing where you just yeah. get new members. But, but for or ev- orchestras, I guess. But for every Orchestras band. keep the same name. Oh, that's yeah, a good yeah. point. There should just be <laughs> the Chicago rock new nem- band. New members. Yeah, yeah, yeah Chicago Yeah, the rock Chicago band. rock band, the New York <laughs> Philharmonic rock band. Yeah, yeah. Uh, down, like, downtown the Lower East Side done. rock band. Time to give it to someone else. Yeah. I'm trying out for noise guitarist for the Chicago rock band. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. At least you'd be covered by the fucking union. At least the AFM yeah, would cover you at that point. This is the solution. This is the solution. that It, it just means that only 150 people at any given time can be making money playing music. Yeah, that's the actual nail in the coffin of rock music. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's like the standardization and like academic thing yeah. where... CEOs want to pay $150 to take their clients out to, yeah. uh, to see a rock show by the yeah. Chicago rock band. Ladies and gentlemen, are you ready for London post-punk band? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that would rock. Yeah. Oh, that was a t- very tasteful illusion. Somehow it's still magazine. got John Lydon as the singer. Um, I'm trying to think of other pedals that are worth talking about in terms of stuff that I actually like. Actually, we should talk about this, Dan, because it's the newest thing that I've been way into that I just ripped off from you. The uh, shallow Fairfield, water. Yeah, Fairfield circuitry, shallow water. That pedal that pedal is like a, a little gem. It's like a little secret weapon. But yeah, it's so uh, cool, man. I love that thing and I use it on um I use it on keyboards too. I use it on synths all the time. But it's basically like it's basically like a low pass gate, like you'd find on a bukla. So, like depending on how hard you play it, the gate opens or closes and lets in more harmonics. But then it's got a sample and hold uh, circuit that bends the pitch of your guitar randomly, either stepped like or smooth, like either kind of portamentos its way through the pitches or or has this kind of blippy stepped quality to it and it's really the thing i like about it is it's really subtle like it doesn't really do extreme effects it just adds this disorienting kind of pitch wobble to everything or like almost like a like a irregular chorus you can dial in a lot of different sounds with it but it's it's great on everything it's great on drums we ran sam's drums through it constantly (laughs) nice that's i need to try that yeah. Um, really yeah, cool. if it's like anything, it's kind of like a chorus or one of those kind of time effects, but it's not because like you're saying, like the low pass gate and stuff makes it hard to describe. Like it's a pretty unique fucking thing. Yeah. And I um, would just describe it as a character pedal overall where totally the only stuff I've recorded with it yet. I recorded like one or two songs that I'll use for fortune kid eventually where I was using it to like, um, I was just like doubling rhythm guitars and doing one with it and one without it. And it adds like a really interesting amount of like depth, but you can't place what it is, which is like really cool. Like if you turn the pedal on and off, it's a huge difference, but you can't place it when you're listening to it on like a rhythm guitar. And I think it's like super cool. But one one really cool use of it is uh, Devoika from Operators figured this out. Uh, You know, when we were recording with Arlen is like, uh, we have this organelle 
synth, which is like a very digital, like super crunchy digital sounding synth. And she was doing a lot of uh, leads and pads with that thing. And there's something like just really tizzy about the sound. There's, there's, it's, it's really airy and piercing at, at certain points, but she was running it through that paddle and a few other ones, but that the shallow water really like smoothed all the edges off that synth and just made it, it made it sound old and, and nice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like in the, I mean, I probably only had it at the practice space for like a month or so before the whole lockdown happened. But in the way that I started using it for solid songs, I was really like slamming it pretty hard and using it on songs with a lot of arpeggios where it gives it like this VHS quality yes, because yeah. when you're, when you're doing these arpeggios and like the, you're using like strings individually, but quickly mm-hmm. it, you really, it like, it plays up the pitch warbliness a lot more. And it's like, yep. that's probably the most distinct noticeable way to use it. And it sounds like really fucking cool. Yeah, it's it's totally great. I actually just remembered I had a pedal that um, I wasn't really like a pedal guy when Wolf Parade started. Like when I definitely not in my band before that. I was I was pedal agnostic. Uh huh. Um, but around like around the time the second Handsome Furs record, I bought this fuzz pedal, this Japanese fuzz pedal called the Super Asilo Fuzz. This incredibly just confused. It's got like dip switches all over it and the manual doesn't really make any sense but basically it's a fuzz pedal and it it runs the circuit or runs the signal through a bunch of different circuits and kind of ring ring modulates it to get fuzz so it's adding or subtracting different tones depending on what switches are up and down but i figured out it out you can tune the tone that it outputs so i wrote a bunch of songs in d and then if you, t- you know, you take your hand off the strings, it kind of scoops up to the D tone and you can set how fast it does that. So it became like a really integral part of my, like those songs and my playing. I used it when, uh, I th- th- like pulled it out of retirement when the operators did the handsome furs sets. I used it in Wolf Parade all over like at Mount Zoomer. Cool. And at one point when Wolf Parade was on tour, somebody fucking stole it in Halifax. Oh fuck, dude! Like from the oh, st- probably Rylan from the stage. <laughs> man, yeah, if you're, I, Rylan, if you're listening, give the yeah, pedal back. I, give I, the pedal well, back, man! Well, Come on. Well, this is the thing. I did get it back eventually. Like I kind of, I kind of flipped out because I was like, any other piece of gear would have been totally fine, except for this yeah. just weird ass random Japanese pedal that I had. And uh, the the person who was running the Wolf Parade fan site, Maria Carrillo, basically just put out a social media blitz and was like whoever stole the pedal just give it back like no one's mad just uh and eventually i got it back oh man that's that's actually amazing to have a decent enough fan community to to you know put that together and get it back and i guess that's why i've been telling you only use pedals from boss that's right yeah (laughs) easily there there is something to that though alex it's like they're super easily replaceable (laughs) That's yeah. the problem is you can just like, give them away after the show. You can whip them into the audience. Yeah, totally. Whip a Boss DS2 into <laughs> at someone's head in the audience, and you then just you just buy a new one. Fold it into the uh, operation operating budget. For that the makes tour, me think of um, when, like, what? How old was I? Maybe like seventeen or something. Like when Arctic Monkeys went on their first American tour. 
I saw them with Nick and they had like one song at that time where they used a tambourine and then Alex Turner just threw the tambourine into the audience and it uh, hit the guy next to Nick in the head and he started bleeding and then Nick <laughs> fought the guy to try to take the tambourine from him. <laughs> oh my like, God. The so guy, the guy just got hit in the head with a tambourine and, and then, then someone started wailing on him. <laughs> luckily, it's kind of like, that a, like guy a ended cross up with between a ninja it. star and a chainsaw. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's got all these little blades sticking out. Yeah, that could fuck you up. Yeah. I, I watched Crystal Castles do a set once where they uh, Alice threw the entire drum kit into the into the crowd and then had to ask for it back because they weren't done playing. <laughs> she was unaware of that. <laughs> She should have thrown it at that guy. She really should have thrown yeah, it yeah. at that guy. I mean, what a prick! Yeah, that guy fucking sucks. But uh, but yeah, it, it's just like so anticlimactic to to do such a like such a punk rock move and then be like, uh, <clears throat> all right, everybody, like um, we're gonna need everybody. We're gonna need the drums uh, back on stage, and then just the awkward silence as the drums are passed to the stage and then reset up. That happened in Nirvana a lot. They would smash their instruments and then be like, "Does someone have wood glue? Does any glue the neck back on this guitar? Yeah. Does anyone we have, have two more songs? Wood glue and a vice. I think depending on how late it is in the set, if you just like uh, you do you do that power move and flip out, yeah, you should just end the set. Like exactly, the, wor- yeah. if the worst would be enough, to do that one song before the encore and that, or before the last song in the set, and then be like, "All right." 20 minutes. Well, for the encore, you come back and take the pieces and smash them up more. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) You come back with power tools. You come back with a circular saw and just start meticulously cutting the guitar into pieces like you're making sushi. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the other, uh, that's the other thing that Japanese noise like sort of closed the book on is, uh, Yamataka Ai, like from Boredom's, his first band, Hanatarash, their final show he had a diesel powered midi bulldozer and um and a circular saw and just destroyed the club severely injured himself too i think he dropped the saw on his arm and it just like sliced through his fucking arm to the bone and like drove the bulldozer into the concrete wall <laughs> smashing it like <laughs> that's just like an e1 bit that's great yeah, th- is this on video uh i don't know but uh it's definitely like the the tail is on the internet you can you can look it Oh, that's so funny. It's well documented. <laughs> yeah, Hanataraj show. Like, just total, total chaos. Imagine trying to be a band that does that at every show. And then every every club you're trying to play is just like... No. No, thank you. I wonder if that happened to Guar at the beginning, where, where people would be like, uh, we heard about what you did the last night. The costumes are too scary. Yeah, yeah. There's two, you left you left uh, half a gallon of mayonnaise on the on the floor <laughs> to clean up. Someone's dog ate all of it, and they had diarrhea everywhere. That's a fucking dick move too, because somebody is cleaning that up. You know, like at the end. Yeah, of the day. yeah. Me and Joel, like in college, used to talk about what if Radiohead started acting like a sh- kind of like shock rock bullshit band, where like they're doing like a really downbeat, you know, like Kid A type of song. Yeah, and then Tom York just grabs a bottle of mustard and acts like it's his dick, and just starts squirting mustard all over the stage. It's <laughs> just like really juvenile pranks during really serious songs. Godspeed you, that would be very funny. Just Godspeed you, Black Emperor, spraying the whole front row with like uh, RC cola. 
Yeah, fake. Exactly. Like, yeah, like presidents. It'd have to be Canadian. So like president's choice. <laughs> they have like a wet t-shirt contest. <laughs> getting girls to come and have president's choice dumped on them during this like twenty-minute noise rock epic. And- during the climactic uh, passage of F sharp, A sharp, Infinity, or yeah. whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Are this you Howard gonna... Stern shit? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Hooters waitresses get free tickets for the next Godspeed show. You got a woman in a Hooters shirt riding the Sibian <laughs> during Tree Fingers. Yeah. <laughs> Tommy Lee from Motley Crue does this thing at his shows where he, his drum kit is in like a, a bubble or something. And it goes on a track over the stage. Oh, you showed me. It's like a and cube And he's like spinning upside right? down. Mm-hmm. And half the time he gets stuck up there and they have to pull him down or he just like <laughs> falls out. He's like a like kitten a, in a tree. Probably six videos of that happening. Yeah. But it would be cool to do that with different bands like Radiohead yeah. <laughs> or Coldplay or like Fleetwood Mac. <laughs> Have them spinning around upside down drumming. Uh, Miley Crew has to tour with like a bunch of firefighters. Jaws of life. And yeah. Um, actually, speaking of Radiohead, it makes me think to get back onto gear. When we were talking about like how expensive gear is fucking stupid as shit earlier. Now my own like biases come out of, I think Johnny Greenwood is justified in having like a $10,000 on Martineau or however you say it. Yeah, because that thing's so sick, and no one like no one in rock music ever used that instrument until he did. Like, he just got it from obviously watching like Messian performances, and being like, "Oh, what the fuck is that weird keyboard they're using?" And then he got in touch with like the only guy who makes portable sized ones of that in like France, and you know, paid ten thousand dollars or whatever to have this thing. But like, to me, that's like worth it because it's like this very strange instrument that no one else is using, and it actually is like a cornerstone of their sound and shit. I have an iPad app that does that um, pretty well. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Damn, yeah. I need to get that. That's sick. Yeah, dude. I'll send it shit. to you. It's uh, yeah. That's the thing about that is you can just play the C note and record a wave of it, and then C sharp, and then record a wave yeah. of that. But it's true. And I mean, then you got the whole instrument. But he started using that in like '99 or 2000. So it's true that, like, the technology really wasn't there at that time. Yeah, he was one of the first guys to use, like, mod- modular synths on stage. Uh, he was mm-hmm. he was using, like, a like the Dofer system, Theater Dofer's, like, modular system back in the early 2000s was kind of, as far as I know, like, the only really accessible, commercially available modular. And I know that... Uh, ex Wolf Parade keyboard player Haji Bakara, uh, who loves Radiohead, I, th- I think that's where he that's where he got the idea to just build a Dofer system and and make uh, UFO landing noises with with Wolf Parade, you know. Totally, yeah. And it was it was cool. It's like I, I remember seeing yeah seeing footage of them playing and just seeing him just rocking out twiddling knobs, and it was it was like at the time it felt like very refreshing, you know. Yeah. Like, Johnny Greenwood embraced just about everything simultaneously in like the early 2000s. I mean, he would have a laptop on stage. Plus, he would use stuff that's not even particularly cool, like a chaosolator where you just fucking drag your finger around, you know? Yeah, like, I, I, I love the chaosolator. Me too, dude. It's awesome. Yeah. Shit rules. Um, but like, I think Johnny Greenwood at the, in that era was willing to just do every like 
to me, he's the greatest rock musician ever as an individual like person. Like he's so fucking insane, dude. Like, yeah, I could watch watching Radiohead performances is so much fun because like just watching him, it's like he'll move from song to even mid song. You know, he might play like a xylophone for half of a song, switch to guitar, you know, he'll do his laptop, you know, whatever on the kid a stuff. He'll run Tom York's vocals through, um, maybe it's like a chaos pad actually, or something and just drag him around. Like, you I know, wonder, I wonder if the rest of the band, like during soundcheck is just like, Oh, here we go. Like, like the bass player yeah. is just like, <laughs> boom, have you got it? Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. Cool. And they're like, okay, Johnny. And then it's an hour, two hours later, like yeah. <laughs> 40 channels of just like xylophone, Martineau. I think like... You really think Johnny Greenwood is the best rock musician of all time? I'd like to introduce you to a guy called Alice Cooper. <laughs> yeah, what is... School's out. I was going to say, what is Johnny Good- Greenwood's opinion on school? He probably thinks it's good. School All those Radiohead guys, I think they met in like Oxford or they something. Did. Yeah, They're you're a bunch right. of, they love homework. School's in for Johnny Greenwood. Yeah. Bunch of Poindexters, honestly. That's why Radiohead covered the Headmaster Ritual by Smiths. Actually, that song's <laughs> about being a little wiener and getting beat up in school. So, uh, what's some other gear that's worth talking? Oh shoot! Uh, okay, to make an actual logical jump here, Johnny Greenwood always uses AC30s. Uh, me and Dan both use AC30s. It's just a good, clean, straightforward amp. Yeah, if you want your amp to, if you want your guitar to sound like a like a guitar, then it's it's a good amp to use. I haven't used an amp in who knows how long, but usually with amp modeling, I use the AC30. Yeah, totally, dude. Or uh, the fake Mesa Boogie. That's a good one. That's probably a good segue, Alex, into you talking about the fact that you just use software stuff. Like, what's your, what's your, um, or did you kind of like transition to that over time, or what's your like thoughts on all that? Um, well, I, I mostly just play on the computer because I live in an apartment, so I can't really like play loud and with an amp. Yeah, I would love if I had a my own property in a barn or something where I could just go hog wild and turn the amp all the way up and like play a real drum set. But I can't really do that without the neighbors hearing. So I just plug into the computer and I use guitar rig and it's got all the regular kinds of amps in there and you can play with the settings and I've got my own presets. Yeah. I, it sounds pretty good. I very recently got native instruments complete with like their, you know, guitar amp simulator shit and uh, contact and all that. And like getting back into the conversation that like plugins are so much better now than they used to be. I'm, I'm definitely like very impressed by a lot of it so far. Oh, I was going to say earlier, it's insane to me that people used to make music on computers in like 1998. Yeah. Yeah, yeah totally. Was- because it took so long for shit to not crash constantly. Even in like 2010, I remember on Windows XP or Vista uh, trying to use a DAW and it would just, if you put in a third party plugin, it would crash. If yeah. you changed any setting, it would just crash. And it would like, you would have to have the buffer size so high and like the latency if you had any plugins going. And it would have a delay or else it would start crackling. And there were people using Pro Tools in, like, 
I don't know when that shit goes back to. Maybe like 1988. People were using I mean, it on like Amigos or whatever. I don't think it was wi- like Pro Tools wasn't really widespread until like mid to late 90s. Cause, and actually, what this is what's really funny is that like you're saying all the correct problems with it, where it was just a pain in the ass to use because like the like RAM and hard drive space and stuff weren't there for for like dealing with having fucking 50 tracks and shit. But the the hilarious thing was like in the late 90s, the people like the cultural attitude toward Pro Tools was like, man, this for the Backstreet Boys. Yeah, it's not for real music. Yeah, it's so fucking stupid <laughs> in retrospect, man. Yeah, I was definitely the Backstreet Boys had great mixes. I was definitely firmly in the pro the like recording on a computer is stupid camp, like because I had um like post hardcore brain poisoning, you yeah. know. <laughs> so I had recorded uh like the first couple of real records I recorded were with the guy that recorded a bunch of the Dayglo abortions records. I don't know if you guys know that band. No, I don't. They're a shitty punk band from the eighties. They had a album called feed us a fetus um <laughs> what were the names of the band members uh was it like johnny Let, fuck yeah 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 it was, uh, <laughs> Garrett, so our first record was recorded over uh dayglo's master tapes that um we had to get from gary brainless's house oh yeah <laughs> yeah uh and the other one of the other members of dayglo's uh his name is i'm not sure if he's still alive i would be surprised but uh his name was lettuce and he was the first confirmed case of scurvy in Canada in, I think, almost 100 years. <laughs> scurvy? Yeah, because he basically lived off of hot dogs and um, ramen. <laughs> That's <laughs> and, oh my God. and beer, and he got scurvy. <laughs> and I guess his, the, the uh, story was he went, his doctor like lost his shit on him. It was basically like if you had eaten like one piece of fruit or vegetable – Every week, you would not be in here with bleeding gums and like an ancient disease. You fucking God, idiot. that's so funny. Like, yeah. So. Native Americans knew that you could cure scurvy by boiling pine needles. Yeah, that's right. Because it has vitamin C in it, and that cures scurvy. In Canada, is like ninety percent conifer forest. Yeah, especially uh, especially where lettuce lived, which was uh, you know on the island that I grew up on, on Vancouver Island, just covered in um, coniferous trees. The whole country is just vitamin C. The water, to get scurvy, that's that's an accomplishment. Just that's water, water cool. everywhere, and not a drop to drink. You know, like that's 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 really it. But yeah, we I, we recorded uh, we recorded like firmly on tape for for a long time. We were just like every band I was in was just like we got to use tape, and then. I think Wolf Parade was the first band I ever recorded on. So that's uh, interesting. Computers with to me because uh, I know that like Isaac Brock, he had started using Pro, like for Moon in Antarctica, they use Pro Tools. Yeah, that's and I right. think it was like um, interesting to hit. I mean, from what I've read about it, it's just because they recorded that in Chicago actually at the studio that's not there anymore. Yeah. They should have had um, a smaller hard drive. He, Album's too long. <laughs> yeah, it is actually. I mean, they should have cut it's like 10, 15 record. minutes, but that's one of my favorite albums ever. Yeah. But um, like, uh, I just remember that that's an album where he kind of embraced Pro Tools and was just very curious to learn about it and was just like, oh, shit, how do you do this and this and this while they're recording it? I, th- um, I think part of that So I'm was curious he... from your perspective of having worked with him after that. Well... He, I think part of the embrace them embracing Pro Tools was he got his jaw broken because uh, he lipped somebody off in the park 
Uh, oh, I've heard in, that story. In yeah. Chicago, and he had his job. <laughs> uh, he had he his, used to go hog wild. Yeah, he was a, he was a wild, is, wild Has he wind. calmed down? Uh, I think he's calmed down, yeah. He's, he's definitely calmed down over the years, for sure. But he was, yeah, he was, he was, a, he was a real crazy dude. And uh, I think they had a lot of extra time to, like, mix uh, mix stuff, you know? So yeah, for sure. That might be, but when we did, like when we did our first EPs, it was all like Arlen recording on, uh, I, I think the first thing we did was like a digital eight track, like, like, which is a terrible format, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. And then when we went into the studio to do apologies, it was like this big, well for us, like big fancy studio and we recorded everything on tape and I think we did some of the vocals digitally, like on Pro Tools or whatever they were running. But then that all got dumped to Pro Tools and yeah, mixed sure. in L.A., but the mix was really bad. So we kind of took everything from there and then re- had to like end up re-recording a bunch of the album. And uh, I think, like, I'll believe in anything, like, basically Spencer and Arlen mixed that on Spencer's G3, like, Mac you know <laughs> was it the colorful one uh no it was it wasn't the colorful one but uh I, it was the um i forgot those existed until just now Actually, Man, I'm curious, what a, dan while what a, we're talking about like wolf parade and and uh recording experiences like how has it been doing the more recent albums where what's the guy's name who produced the last couple he's been around for a super long time but obviously uh, like john goodmanson he yeah you're yeah, obviously he, though it's a whole different era now than it was when Wolf Prey started, you know? And yeah, yeah. It's, it's like, you know, we went through like a weird mid period where we were still kind of pro tools phobic, like post apologies. And Arlen bought this, this totally proprietary, like sealed off recording system called radar, which was like digital audio converters. Uh, I think it had its own keyboard and monitor. It had like a, a fucking trackball. You know, like not, <laughs> not like a mouse pad, but like a yeah. trackball. And uh, it was all self-contained. Um, it was like a very small operation. It was like one guy who built them. And uh, the idea was that this, uh, because it was just proprietary for that, the sound was closer to tape and you could kind of scrub it like you could with tape. Uh, you can do the same kind of like really precision um, grid based stuff. But um, eventually, like Dante and Spencer both bought Reaper setups, <laughs> or not Reaper, sorry, Radar, Radar setups. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. It's Radar, um, and we the EP that we did, like uh, when we reformed, we did on Radar, and I was just like, this fucking sucks. Yes, yeah. <laughs> system yeah, exactly. is just so. After having done like. The things Comedy. that changed between Mount Zoomer and that EP, like that's like nearly a decade, right? Between those, it's about like, a, it's about it's a, a decade. Yeah, yeah, it's a whole different world digitally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, now working with John, it's uh, you know, it's a combination of Pro Tools and tape, and yeah, that's the actual way to go. Is use everything strategically. Like, I think some of it, some of it is like like for effects and stuff is process based to like. Uh, you know, like my studio uh, that I have with Devoika, like our our recording studio um, that we share with our buddy Andy, who mixed uh, Radiant Dawn. 
we have a, like a setup where it's a one-to-one thing with a mid-level mixing board. And then like we have a tape machine, but we haven't turned it on in a year. And then uh, outboard, outboard effects. So like an Eventide harmonizer I found at like the yeah, junk yeah. shop, you know? Yeah, and and I, w- I would say like, even though, even though Eventide, you know, makes like great clones of, of those harmonizers that are way easier to use and program, there's, there's something about physically punching in like the harmonizer algorithm or like wiggling the knob on the tape echo or yeah. whatever that that you can't really get from from using plugins. It, I, I mean, I mean, it's a lux- it's a total luxury. Like, there's but. even another side to it that's beyond um, the tactile thing, but like. The problem with plugins is that it's too easy to tweak them forever. And oh, when, you yeah, have outboard, yeah, yeah. when you have outboard gear, you're going to kind of find your settings and you're going to find what you like and you're definitely going to like stick to it. And I think that plugins invite a lot of like revisiting of like, I'm going to tweak this, 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 this. Yeah. Um, Not yeah, like, good. That's always going to be a virtue of outboard gear is just like set it and forget it. Well, that's that's like over exaggerating yeah. it, but, well, but no, like, it's a, being. It's an, it's an immediacy and it prevents tone questing, which is exactly. yeah, yeah. kills a session. Like that's my least favorite thing. The, uh, like it's good to set, I think it's good practice to set aside time for tone questing, you know, yeah. like with effects, especially like, I think it's different with synth sounds where you can, you're really like shaping something that's going to go to tape. So it's important that you put the time in, but with like minor effects tweaks, you got to, you got to put a limit on the tone quest, man. It's, yeah, uh, that's why you make presets. So you find it once, and then you go to it again for something else. So you don't have to find it twice. Yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly. And if it sounds the same, if it's the same effect as something else on the record, that's fine. It's yeah. consistency. Because yeah. all the records you love to listen to have, you know, like, oh, it's this same reverb. On, yeah, it's know? a limited palette of unique <laughs> yeah. stuff. Yeah. Like it was recorded in like eight hours. Yeah, yeah. With you the find, same shit at the you same. You find settings. a handful of really great tones and then use them for that record because that's the whole point of the record is to feel cohesive anyway. You're allowed to reuse shit within like the same record, you know. Yeah, I don't know when. I mean, maybe, maybe digital recording as a format getting really user user friendly and really workable and less buggy uh kind of lended itself to people needing to make every single song sonically and effects wise different than the other songs on the album like like that, that was a thing for a while was just you know real like pet uh sort of crazy quilt records you know yeah definitely there are people that uh Sometimes the filters, like the noise gate for your creativity is set just a little bit too high. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and it's uh, letting some of the the chair squeaking through. You can, <laughs> I feel like you can definitely tell a band that is surrounded by people who are telling them that they're geniuses, <laughs> you know, like. Yeah. I don't know how I would do in that situation. Everybody I would won't. hope that I would still maintain a filter, but yeah. I don't know if you're like you have the financial ability to only surround yourself with people like that. I don't know what that does for art. I think sometimes it's good. Sometimes people who are like super rich or whatever, like David Bowie are still able to put out stuff. That's not garbage. 
yeah, yeah, and for a long period of time. But sometimes it's uh, people get that that like feedback loop and it just drops off completely. Well, basically, it tests your internal compass. Like when you become that rich and famous, all you have left to go on is that internal compass. And if it was never there, then you're gonna just believe whatever the fuck you hear and become really shitty. But if you always knew to you what was good, then you'll keep on making what was good to you in the first place, maybe. But yeah. Yeah. Also, well, the other the other pitfall is you could just stop caring about what you're doing and just turn in garbage. But that's, that's almost the worst. Like I'd rather listen to a failed experiment by you know of a sort of failed expression of someone's giant artistic ego then listen to somebody who's like showing up for a paycheck basically or maybe who's just showing up and was like we're we're gonna do what we've always done <laughs> you know? like yeah exactly punch yeah, there in, has punch to out. be something to dig into <laughs> yeah i agonize about that shit with wolf parade that's like probably the biggest artistic uh if i have like an artistic struggle that's it and it's really only for Wolf Parade, but it's like, you know, we have a bunch of records. We have, we've been a band for like a decade and a half and, or longer, I guess. And every time we write a bunch of new songs, it's, I have to turn off the part of my brain that is comparing them to stuff that we did before or asking myself, is this, you know, are we pushing this in any new direction? I just have to completely shut it down and just, kind of go on instincts that I will know whether something sucks sucks bad enough. I keep telling you guys you know. reggae. You gotta yeah. go reggae. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you heard Santeria by Sublime. You gotta yeah. go in that direction. We're, no, we're, that blo- it- we're blown it by not jumping on the fourth wave ska uh, revival, which is coming any minute now. Oh my god! We gotta, it's ha- it's happening, man. It's we gonna have militias on the earlier. street to Dude, stop that. Dude, we've gone through like five ska revivals in the last decade. <laughs> yeah. We gotta have guys back. with assault rifles yeah. looking out for people with two tone shoes. Wait, doesn't a hundred Gex have a, has a have a fucking ska song? They do. Do they? I don't know. I only yes, listen to like do. their singles. I didn't. I didn't. Yeah, uh, that's so that's the uh, canary in the coal mine for the. Uh, seventh wave ska revival that is gonna <laughs> sweep post covid brooklyn but it, it's um, possible to do ska well we will all be picking it up now you know? the problem is like ska is such a it's one of those genres that's not really a genre as much as a certain rhythmic flair that you add to just pop music just upstrokes yeah yeah it's just a certain way of playing guitar and a certain drum beat it's the- not it depends on how hard you lean into it, though. If you go, like, if you take the template and then also add, you know, kind of a pseudo-Jamaican accent over top of it. <laughs> you got to uh, go full um, Adrian Brody. Get yeah. dreadlocks. Yeah. Get into the whole character. I just bummed myself out thinking about a post-COVID scar revival. <laughs> <laughs> no, that would be really funny. It makes sense. I'll participate in it. Who cares? It's upbeat, energetic music, you know, with real instruments like horns. It's the kind of thing people are going to want after being stuck at home. And everyone's going to be like, this sounds like that Why You Gotta Be So Rude song. Yeah, yeah. yeah. By 311. I I would think, like, if quarantine ended and a bunch of people were suddenly really good at trombone, that would mean that they're practicing now. Oh, <laughs> that's a good point. Which is a pretty good bit if you're in like a 
a 13th floor walk up in Brooklyn and you're just practicing <laughs> yeah. trombone all day. My neighbors hate me now, but they're yeah. going to see me on, uh, on YouTube in a year. That's that. That's funny. You should mention that, Alex, because uh, this 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 guy, music critic Dan Ozzy, who I, I saw a tweet of his a couple of months ago, where he was, or a month ago, where he was like, uh, "Holy shit!" There's a guy like on the other side of a lot practicing trombone, and then a few weeks ago, he was like, "Somebody has joined this guy on trumpet, like in a <laughs> in a different apartment." It's already happening. Playing playing ska no music. Talent. Playing no ska talent. No talent. So it's I hap- walked Bob Dylan out on yeah. stage in 1974. <laughs> Got no talent. No talent. Yeah. The, uh, uh, well, now I'm in favor of ending the lockdown just to get these Scott people out of their apartments. Trombone is a weird instrument because it doesn't have the set tones. It's like um. It's like an Owens. It's Martin like a now. fretless bass. Yeah. In classical music, they didn't do like the slides and stuff really as much as would warrant having an instrument that hard to learn. Number one comedy brass instrument, trombone. Number two comedy brass instrument, tuba. Of course, that's, yeah. That's it. That's the, no question. That's, that's the list. Flugelhorn's pretty good. Oh, yeah, okay, flugelhorn. <laughs> flugelhorn. Classic King of the Hill motif. Yeah. Um, to, uh, Dan, getting back to what you were talking about a little bit ago, I think it's like I was saying with, like, you have to have an internal compass of what's good. I think Wolf Parade has remained consistent because despite having done a bunch of albums, you just have a good enough internal idea of what's not retreading the same ground that I think every album does have its own character and shit. I I think because there's, you know, two principal songwriters and then Arlen who does like a ton of production and arrangement work. Like there's, there's always a tiebreaker with Arlen, but like I think Spencer and I managed, managed to keep ourselves in check and we also both got to get our weird shit out on, you know, like other projects. Like, like, I don't, you know, I, I don't think Wolf Parade would have made, it would have been like a fight in the studio if we had been trying to play Dragon Slayer songs, you know? Yeah, totally. <laughs> where, where I was like, we need to stop using, like, <laughs> we need to just use a sequencer. Yeah. <laughs> Arlen hit the sequencer, you know? Like, yeah, that's a good point. So, but it's, so that, but that's, th- that even that I helps. think even that is kind of what I'm saying though of like you know yourselves well enough to know where to put what ideas like you're not trying to force ideas that everyone else is going to hate. Yeah, for the most part. <laughs> it would be kind of interesting if every solo project and side project was just released as Wolf Parade. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe we blew it. Would it. confuse people. Maybe we blew it. <laughs> Maybe That's we more like been... the fortune kit here thing of of just put uh, the lizard song and the ambient thing out in the same name and let people sort it out, let yeah, God sort right. them out. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's like a like a smorgasbord. You can you know like a like a buffet, like an all like an all you can eat buffet. You you don't have to have the penne with tomato sauce. You can have the chicken with cream. You sauce. don't have to have the lizard meat. You don't. Yeah, you yeah. don't like lizard. No problem. Uh, we got have salad. some wine. Have some wine. Have a have a sip of wine. First and foremost, this is a Christian podcast. Yeah, <laughs> that's the foundation. That and uh, uh, and uh, regime change in Venezuela. Yeah. Oh, we got to get them out of there. We got to put some Germans in charge. We got to bring our boys back home. You know what I'm saying? The or your <laughs> boys? They're not our. Actually, no, they're our boys too. Because it was a Canadian. Uh, it was a Canadian that founded Silver Corp. 
the uh, mercenary group that uh, went into Venezuela. It sounds like something from Pokemon. Yeah, it I, does. <laughs> Yo, when Silverchair tried to do that coup, <laughs> that was so <laughs> fucked up, dude. You guys are Australian. What do you think you're doing over there? Yeah, you have no business. No longer friends with Silverchair. New friend, Marcy Playground. I want to know what they were listening to. Like, they pro- they were definitely... Five Finger Death Punch. You yeah, think totally. So? That's exactly easy, right, yeah. Easy answer. We need, uh, we, need to do, we need to do some investigative journalism and find out what uh, uh, Silver Guard or whatever. You said Silver Chair. Now I can't remember the actual <laughs> name. <laughs> what yeah, Sil- Silver Chair. Silver, what Silver Chair was listening to to get the, uh, to get the recruits hyped up, uh, you know? Like what were they? What were they getting pumped to do a coup to? What was the soundtrack? Yeah, Alex is definitely right. Five finger, uh, five death, finger punch. death punch. That's got to be it. Possibly like some classics, like Corn, maybe. Oh, the, I oh, think that's too queer corn, for them. The Corn dubstep album. Corn dubstep album, maybe. Yeah, they, they could be. Uh, Wagner. Um, <laughs> yeah, there we go. Uh, Lenny Reifenstahl soundtracks. Um, Moxie Fruvis for the Canadian content. Probably Metallica Black Album. All Definitely. that just assumes too much cultural knowledge that happened more than five years ago, though. That's why Five Finger Death Punch is definitely it. Yeah, so maybe it's just like the cool tracks from the Nickelback albums. <laughs> yeah, don't. They don't get released as singles, but the the songs where they talk about fucking and drinking, deep cuts, the hard hard rock songs that yeah. are track four on the album. That's what they're listening to. The deep tracks. I think. Um, to come back around to gear chat, we need to get Five Finger Death Punch on here and tell us how they trigger their extremely sh- shitty sounding kick drums. And uh, ask, ask Zoltan what kind of guitar, what kind of V-neck he's using for his solos. The guy's name is Zoltan? Yeah. Love that name. It's a great. Hungarian name. Beautiful. Yeah, they have is that good, his real name? Yeah, it is. They have a good oh, music video. His real name is Zoltan sh- Bathory. Yeah, he's shredding in a swimming pool. For the solo, it's really good. Let's just have Zoltan on and talk about politics. <laughs> I don't talk to Hungarians. Let's talk about. Uh, you think he's an a, Orban guy? I think I. I, I would assume know. he's an Orban. Guy. I don't like how separate their language is from the rest of the European languages. They think they're better than everybody else, and I don't like it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what they think they're doing. Their language originating like east of the Urals. Come on. Well, I think we talked about all the gear that's out there. Can't imagine what you would want to know about gear that we didn't cover. It's true. It was a deep dive. Look up Line 6 amps. It's got the whole package yeah. and one small amp. You can go from clean to insane with just the turn of a dial. Or a pressable well, really, button, you know? That's the niche Legendary market. tone from Line 6. Eric Clapton, Line 6 amp. Line 6 is a very niche product. It's not for most people. It's only for people who are smart enough about guitar tone to realize that it's not insane enough. <laughs> exactly. Like there's a certain level of insanity you can get about just you can get it from just about any amp. But if it's just not insane enough for you, that's the only way to go. I want so much gain you can't hear the notes anymore. If I can hear what's going on, what I'm playing, there isn't enough gain. That's why you gotta take a line six, take the aux out plug it into another Line 6 amp, turn that one to Insane too, and then you can sound like Dimebag Derek. <laughs> R.I.P. Yeah, check out, check out Dimebag Derek on Truthpoint every week. 
Yeah. Wednesdays <laughs> on Adult Swim. That's right. He's still alive. I think we uh, we summed it up here then. Gear talk concluded. Yeah.